Good evening, folks, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Shrieks and Geeks Double Feature Show. I'm your host, Gabriel Wellborn, and we intend to become the best damn show on the internet for people who are as enthusiastic as I am for cult classic movies. Here's how it works. Each week, I will bring you two movies that have something in common. They could have a similar director or an actor. actor. Uh, maybe they came out the same decade or from the same country, or like tonight, maybe the movies just have a similar plot or theme. Uh, but we've got it all. We've got horror movies, sci-fi, fantasy, comedy, action. Uh, basically, any any cult classic movie that I love, I'm going to share with you. And I'm not here to review the movies. Uh, let me just throw that out there now. I'm just here to share. I'm I'm here to share my love for the movies and talk about them, the actors, the filmmakers, the special effects, uh, this you know my favorite scenes, uh, you know some behind the scenes stories, stuff like that. Um, just, like I said, just sharing the love. I'm not here to tell you if it's a good movie or not. I'm just here to tell you I love it. Um, so without further ado, I present to you episode one, Stay the Hell Out of the Water. That's right, folks. Tonight I am bringing you two great water eco-horror movies from the 1970s. The first movie I have for you tonight that is the classic tale of a man who goes on a murderous rampage of revenge after the death of his beloved wife and child. I'm not talking about Gladiator. I'm not talking about Death Wish. I am, of course, talking about the 1977 classic Orca, the Killer Whale, produced by Dino De Laurentiis and directed by Michael Anderson. Now, this is one of those movies, it's usually just cast aside as a Jaws ripoff. And while it's definitely inspired by the success of Jaws, it really deserves to be recognized on its own just because it has such an original plot and so many other things going for it. Uh, kind of just to simple, simplify the plot, though, uh, it's basically this fisherman uh, played by uh, Richard Harris of Harry Potter fame. Uh, he, him and his uh, crew, they try to catch a killer whale to sell to aquariums. Uh, in the process, the whale, the female whale is killed and she miscarries on the deck of the ship. So the male orca in the movie watches his basically his wife and child die in front of him and then goes on this like revenge fueled massacre of this crew that did it um and like i said it's it's not a ripoff it's definitely inspired by jaws but the plot alone really set itself apart because it it has you rooting more for the animal than the humans which is really rare in those 70s eco horror movies by the way, eco-horror, it, it's just what us movie nerds call uh, horror movies about animals going on their rampages against humans. Um, but Dino De Laurentiis, uh, he produced the movie with Luciano Vicenzoni, who uh, wrote the film. And as the story goes, Dino, he calls up uh, Vincenzoni one night and said, after watching Jaws and basically told him to find a fish that was tougher and more terrible than a great white shark. Uh, and Vincenzoni's brother, who was a zoology enthusiast, turned him on to killer whales, and I guess the rest is just movie history. And I know some people out there already call me out saying, you know, orcas aren't fish. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying how the story goes. Leave me alone, smartass. Um, but the screenplay was actually based on a novel, which not many people know about, uh, the novel was written by Arthur Herzog, who, to my knowledge, he never got credit in the film for the original novel. And I think that's why most people don't know that it's uh, based on a book. Uh, 
To direct it, they hired Michael Anderson, who had just directed Logan's Run the year before, which is another movie that eventually I'm going to have to talk about because it's just such a great example of 70s sci-fi in style other than Star Wars. He did some other stuff too, though. Uh, Most notably, he did the 1955 version of Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, He also did the World War II epic The Dam Buster. So he really... You know, he's one of those directors that really, uh, he doesn't get a lot of credit where credit's due, but he's done a lot of great movies of various genres. Um, Now, the movie, it's not as scary as Jaws, but it definitely has, like, it feels like it has more depth, and the characters are well, very much more well-rounded. And what adds a lot to that depth that I mentioned is the score of the movie, which was done by Ennio Morricone, who is, he's most famous for working with Sergio Leone films and uh, recently you probably I think it was right before he passed he did The Hateful Eight with Quentin Tarantino Uh, and it's it's a really really beautiful musical score for this movie Uh, it almost doesn't feel like it belongs in a horror movie but it does work for this one and uh, but they used uh, they used two real orcas in the film uh, which we'll get to later but they had also had their special effects department make up a series of rubber orca models and puppets that were made for the shots, uh, you know, that they couldn't really use a real live killer whale for, usually when they're, you know, performing some kind of task uh, involving the humans. Uh, But the story goes that these puppets were so lifelike that animal rights activists actually attempted to stop the trucks uh, that were carrying them to the filming locations. And that kind of, like, kind of, like, makes me think of that scene at the end of Lake Placid, if you've ever seen that movie. Another great eco-horror movie uh, from the late 90s. But at the end of that movie, they've got a semi-truck with a flatbed hauling a, you know, this giant crocodile down the highway. And I can just bet if they, you know, freaked out about the orca uh, puppets in this movie that they must have had a field day with PETA when they were filming that scene. Um, But back on track, speaking of the characters... Uh, Let's get into the players real quick. Um, Leading the cast, like I said before, is Richard Harris as the Irish-Canadian fisherman Nolan. Uh, He was 46 when they filmed this thing, and during the finale of the movie, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, he actually insisted on doing most of his own stunts, which nearly killed him on a few occasions. And, you know, Harris, Richard Harris obviously has a very long and successful career in film, uh, you know, he got his real big break playing King Arthur in the original version of Camelot in 1965. Uh, and, of course, he did A Man Called Horse. But younger viewers, uh, you know, mo- most people in my generation are going to recognize him from one of two things. Uh, first being, you know, 1999's Gladiator, where, you know, if you remember, he was uh, played Marcus Aurelius, who was smothered to death by Joaquin Phoenix at the beginning of the film. Uh, but more notably than that, uh, in the first two Harry Potter films, he played Albus Dumbledore. Sorry, Albus Dumbledore, uh, and he actually died shortly after the second movie. So he didn't. He was replaced by Michael Gambon, who most people agree doesn't really do as good a job as Harris did. Uh, Charlotte Rampling, uh, she's she's also in this. She kind of plays the. Uh, typical sympathetic animal expert who just happens to teach a class on orcas at the beginning of the film. 
Uh, and Charlotte, she's a very successful actress, and she's been in a lot of art house films, but she's always looked back on this movie with a lot of esteem and pride. Uh, she's never said a bad word about it, and anytime anybody's ever asked her about it, she's always seemed very excited to talk about it. Uh, Will Sampson's also in this. He plays the another kind of typical character for these kind of movies, which was the wise indigenous guide, um, which is just like this. It's just a tradition in these movies. There's that Native American or indigenous person that happens to know a little bit more than anyone else about what's really going on. Uh, but you're probably recognizing him if you're a cinephile from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with uh, Jack Nicholson. But uh, in this movie, Samson, he plays Umalak, who they basically set him up to be this important uh, figure in the hunt for the orca at the end of the movie. And, I mean, it really doesn't play out as well as you'd like. Uh, and finally, uh, Bo Derek uh, as Annie. Uh, and I don't know what her role was in the crew on the fishing boat. She may have just kind of been there to, you know, bring them more harpoons or something. But... Uh, this was actually her first film role, uh, and she plays Annie, who is the girlfriend to one of the other characters on the boat, and she has a very, one of the most famous scenes from, if not the most famous scene from this movie, involves her and the orca, and we'll be talking about that soon. Uh, but she actually worked with uh, Richard Harris again a few years later when her husband directed them both in Tarzan the Ape Man. So it's some uh, some more stuff you might check out if you uh, like that. But uh, let's get into some before we get into like the real spoiler section. Let's talk about some of the body count here. So in total, the body count is five humans, two orcas, and one orca fetus, and not to mention the shapely leg of Bo Derek. So definitely check it out. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, go ahead and shut this down now because I'm going to go into some spoiler territory. If you have seen it or if you just don't give a shit about spoilers, you know, keep listening. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so if you've seen the movie, uh, you know it's not really a happy ending for anyone. I mean, Nolan, uh, Richard Harris's character, dies. Uh, the orca gets trapped under the ice uh, and doesn't – it's assumed that he's going to die because he can't find an air hole. And Rachel, played by Charlotte Rampling, is, you know, basically scarred for life, though it does look like she's getting out alive because the helicopter finds her at the end. Uh, and those scenes at the end were filmed in Malta, by the way. Uh, people of Malta are very proud of the movies made there. Uh, most famously, they took the entire village set from Popeye and uh, the Popeye movie with Robin, the late, great uh, Robin Williams, and basically turned into a theme park out there. Uh, but other famous films they've shot there, you know, they did Gladiator, Midnight Express, uh, World War Z, Troy. They've got a long history of uh, movies being shot there, and it's it's definitely a place I'd like to check out one day. Uh, the live whales used were named Yika and Nippo, and the scenes with them were actually shot at Marineland Los Angeles out there in California. Um when, they, when you see them doing all the acrobatic stuff at the beginning or when you get those really, really good underwater shots of the orcas swimming around, those are, the, those are two captive orcas out there in Los Angeles. Uh, by the way, we, uh, we also got Robert Carradine in this movie I forgot to mention earlier. He played uh, 
Ken, the research assistant that the orca saves from a shark at the beginning of the movie, and then later he kills him near the climax. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he's pretty famous in his own right, not only for being the one of the Carradine brothers, but you know, he's also worked with a lot of great actors. Uh, I know my favorite thing, his first movie was actually in The Cowboys with John Wayne, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, but he really shot up in stardom when he played Lewis in Revenge of the Nerds, the one with the uh, goofy laugh. Um, but if you're, you know, if you, my generation, I never watched the show myself, but I know a lot of people did. You'll probably recognize him as the father of Lizzie McGuire. Uh, it doesn't really make sense that his character was even there at the climax, towards the climax of the movie. I think they just realized their body count was so low they needed a couple more people in there to for the orca to kill and that's why he's there uh speaking of kill count though do you know what the official kill count for wild orcas on humans is it's actually zero i shit you not there hasn't been a single recorded fatal attack by a wild orca on a human uh, and unfortunately if you've seen the documentary blackfish we know that the same isn't true for captive orcas uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually when Richard Harris is having his little moment in the tent with Charlotte Rampling's character, and he kind of goes over how he no, he relates to the orca because he had a wife and child that were killed by a drunk driver. Uh, but he also he also you know kind of takes it further and says that while he was sad about his wife and child passing. He believes that the orca cared more for his family, and that's why he's going on this revenge spree. And he actually uh, brings it up later on that he is the orca's drunk driver. So it's a pretty cool scene. Uh, kind of develops his character a lot, and like, and it kind of just adds to what I said earlier about the characters being a lot more developed than they were in Jaws. Uh, and speaking of Jaws. Uh, the legends go. The, the legend basically goes that Universal wasn't happy about the movie's portrayal of the great white shark at the end of the movie, where the orca kills him to save Robert Carradine's character, uh, and that's why they include that iconic scene in Jaws two, where they find the uh, washed up carcass of a dead orca with the giant shark bait, uh, shark bite taken out of it. Uh, in reality, though, uh, there's no way a great white shark and a full grown orca. There's no way that shark's going to come out on top in that fight. Uh, but Orca, it actually uh, almost got a sequel. Uh, and this is kind of a funny story. But Dino, uh, Dino De Laurentiis was playing around with the idea of doing a sequel to the remake he did of King Kong a few years earlier. That The really bad one with Jeff Bridges and uh, who was it? Jessica Lange was in it. But he wanted to do a sequel to that. And he actually, for a while, thought that he should do a sequel where King Kong and the Orca do battle. Uh, and unfortunately, the genius that would have been King Kong vs. Orca never came to fruition. And instead they did, uh, I believe it was King Kong Lives. Uh, as far as this movie goes, uh, you can find it on DVD, on you can find it on Amazon or most pre-owned DVD stores at a fairly reasonable price. I know Shout Factory is coming out with a special edition Blu-ray soon, and they've got a really good track record with their re-releases, so if you love this movie as much as I do, be sure to keep your eye out for that one. Um, I personally got the movie on Blu-ray. It was, I believe, 
It was on Amazon. It wasn't from Shout Factory, though. And it may have actually been a region-free copy. But uh, if you look up look it up on Amazon, you'll definitely find it. Uh, but that's going to be it for Orca tonight. Let's get to our second movie. Uh, from bigger than a great white shark to smaller than a catfish, our next movie changes things up a bit by trading one large monstrous animal for several small ones. Uh, that's right, folks. Now we're going to talk about Roger Corman's 1978 classic, Piranha, which has been remade and remade. Uh, it's a classic story of military testing gone wrong. An army lab produces a mutant strain of piranha for use in Vietnam, and years after the war, the school of fish is accidentally released into a resort lake where they feed on the helpless tourists. Uh, so this movie... Uh, much more than the last one was inspired by Jaws. Uh, in fact, this one is a blatant ripoff. Uh, but I think it may have been the most successful of the Jaws ripoffs. Um, but like I said, it was produced by Roger Corman, who's well known for these low be- low budget, fast produced type of movies that just turned a huge profit, relatively speaking, to what they cost to make. Um, but to direct the movie, he brought in Joe Dante. Now, at the time, Joe Dante had only directed one feature, but it wasn't very successful. Then he did this, and later on he did Gremlins, which is probably his most famous movie. But he also did The Burbs with Tom Hanks, Inner Space with Martin Shore and Dennis Quaid. He directed The Howling, which is one of my, probably, not actually definitely one of my top three werewolf movies of all time. And Gremlins 2, he did Small Soldiers in the 90s, which was a huge movie for me when I was a kid. Um, the, the movie basically got designed from the get-go to get syndicated on television, though. I mean, it was they wanted to release it theatrically, but they also wanted to run over and over on uh, basic cable. So they used a lot of actors that were, I guess, television-friendly. Um, Bradford, Bradford Dillman as the hero Paul Grogan. He had been in several TV series and made-for-TV movies. Uh, but he'd also done movies, uh, theatrical movies as well. He was in the Planet of the Apes franchise, Dirty Harry franchise, uh, stuff like that. And then Heather Menzies got the female lead, and she just basically made her career in television as well. Uh, in fact, one of the best stories about this movie, behind the scenes anyways, is about Heather Menzies. Uh, if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about, but there is a scene where she... Flashes her bre- her character flashes her breast in an army guy uh, to distract him during an escape scene. And when she signed on for the movie, it was with the understanding that she would be doing that scene. I mean, it was in the contract and everything. Uh, but then when it came time to shoot, she got cold feet. Uh, basically, she was afraid of what her husband would think of her for doing it. And so the film was shot in Texas, and most of the crew were staying at this Holiday Inn down there. And Joe Dante found a young waitress at the hotel bar and somehow convinced her on the spot to be a body stand-in for Menzies in that scene. Uh, so when you see the breast, it's actually the waitress and not Heather Menzies. Um, sorry for all you big Heather Menzies fans out there, but those are not her breasts. Those are a random waitresses. Uh, I'd actually, I mean, that's, <laughs> I would actually like to hear, uh, not from Joe Dante, from actually that waitress uh, on how he was able to convince her to do that. So maybe maybe one day I'll find out who that was and score an interview with her. Uh, but going on, uh, Kevin McCarthy, he plays Dobber, uh, Dr. Robert Hoke, 
who he seems like kind of a comp. Uh, he seems he's they're com they're kind of combining the characters of Quint and Hooper from Jaws in this one. He's the expert, but he's also this grizzled old salty veteran type. Uh, but he was uh, he was really well known at the time for sci-fi movies. In fact, he was the lead in the original version of Invasion of the Body Statures, uh, Snatchers. You'll also recognize uh, Dick Miller in this movie. He's, of course, most famous for his performance in Gremlins, where he got ran over by the, uh, was it a bulldozer or something, that he was always talking about being American-made, and he freaked out because Gremlins were in it. <laughs> but he was also in Small Soldiers, so he's, he's done a few things with uh, Joe Dante. But he kind of fills that uh, Murray Hamilton role from Jaws of the kind of the official that has the chance to shut things down to you know prevent people from getting hurt, but just ignores it because he wants money. Uh, and lastly, we've got Barbara Steele. Uh, she plays the more sinister scientist in the movie. Um, you're, you'll really recognize her though if you're a fan of Italian horror movies. Uh, she was all over that scene in the '60s, most notably in Black Sunday. Um, now, there there were several people that worked on Piranha in the special effects department that really went on to have very successful careers. Phil Tippett, uh, he helped with the design of the puppet uh, Piranha, and he would go on to work on Star Wars and Robocop, Jurassic Park, all these big-budget movies that were basically the cutting edge in special effects for their time. Um, but he, uh, one thing he did on this movie, apart from the actual Piranha, was the little shark lizard creature that you see roaming around the lab towards the beginning of the film and uh it was a completely stop motion character and it, it only ended up having that one scene but the original plan was to keep bringing him back as a running gag kind of you know each scene he was in he would be a little bit bigger uh and then eventually he'd be killed randomly by a police car colliding with it during the chase later in the film uh, Robert Boughton also worked on this movie. He's the man behind the amazing effects in John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, yet again, another movie that we're going to be talking about eventually on this show. Um, but he was actually given the chance to direct a scene for Piranha. Uh, the scene in question was going to be... It, it would feature a deaf couple communicating in sign language uh, briefly before being attacked by the Piranha. Uh, the scene was never used, but he did make a prosthetic head of the male, char male character in that scene that was later used when it popped up uh, during the second climax of the movie. Uh, and speaking of climaxes, there's actually three climaxes in the movie. You've got the summer camp attack, the resort attack, and then the scene where uh, Bradford Dillman, as Paul Grogan, uh, basically does his last stand to kill all the fish. And the multiple climaxes was actually Corman's idea. In fact, he insisted on this. He wanted as many as possible, and they finally... I guess just settled on three. Um, but the scenes where you actually see the prawn attacking, uh, those were some of those puppets I mentioned uh, that were built by Phil Tippett. Um, they're basically just rubber prawn puppets, but they have metal rods with a little trigger to operate the mouse, kind of like those plastic shark toys that kids get, uh, but obviously a little more, uh, a little scarier and a little more technologi technologically advanced. Um, but they also had puppets where they were controlled from the uh, the rods were coming out of their mouth so the actors on top of the raft could maneuver them so it looked like they were biting through the raft and in fact when they were filming that scene Phil Tippett was bashed almost unconscious 
while he was underwater when one of the uh, rods being operated by the actors just repeatedly hit him in his scuba gear several times. Uh, and all those shots, by the way, all the shots of the piranha, all the puppets, special effects, those were reused in the 90s when re- uh, when Roger Corman remade the movie as a television movie. They reused all those special effects shots and just redid the scenes with new actors. So you have the same the same fish puppets biting the bottom of the raft. You just had younger, newer actors uh, on top. And that's just basically classic Roger Corman doing whatever he can to save a buck and still produce a profit. Um, but they were able to shoot this film in a relatively short amount of time. I think it was just a little over 30 days. Um, and th- again, that's another thing with Roger Corman. He just he wants to speed through these movies, get them made, get them out where they can make money. In fact, he was so cheap that he almost canceled the project completely. Uh, they were filmed. They had filmed the opening scene and sent the dailies to him. And after watching it, he called up Joe Dante and told him to scrap the project. And obviously, Dante was able to convince him to let him finish the movie. And now we have the beauty that is Piranha. Uh, but let's talk about body count for a minute. Uh, it beats out Orca because it boasts a respectable seven characters killed, and that's seven like named and invested characters. Uh, not just extras. So it kind of beats out uh, Orca in that respect. But overall, I, I do consider Orca to be the better of the two movies. Uh, it's not to say that Piranha's bad in any way. It's just I prefer Orca. I think it's got the more original story. The music's beautiful. The special effects are great. Uh, but they're both, I mean, if you're just bored in quarantine on a Friday night, they're definitely both fun movies to check out. Um but let's talk about the climax real quick of the movie, the final climax, I should say, uh, where Bradford Dillman had to go in and pollute the water, basically, to kill all the piranha. Uh, three minutes and 45 seconds. That's the length of time from the moment Bradford Dillman takes his deep breath to the second he comes back to the surface after opening the valve. Uh, so, I mean, I know I couldn't hold my breath for three minutes, 45 seconds, but you're welcome to try. Um but speaking of death scenes uh, in the movie, Roger Corman insisted on the piranha attacking and killing children as well. It's another one of those things that he just would not budge on. And so that's why we've got that that first climax at the um, at the kids' summer camp where you know all, a bunch of the kids are killed and almost all of them are bitten. Um, but... The problem they had with the plot was how were they going to get the kids in the water? And the original idea was that a bear was going to chase the kids into the water. But then they thought, why would the bear be chasing them? And then they thought, well, maybe there's a fire chasing the bear, chasing the kids. Uh, but they eventually they just went super simple, did the summer camp, and had the kids doing a little water race. And speaking of deaths, Keenan Wynn was in this movie, too. I completely forgot about him. Uh, he actually played the old man, Jack, at the beginning of the movie, who, uh, if you remember, he's sitting there with the dog on the dock, and he's dangling his feet in the water, and all of a sudden he gets attacked. Uh, kind of really a silly kind of scene, though, because, well, I mean, obviously it's just a movie, but I know we're all thinking the same thing when we watch that scene, is as soon as you get bit, why not just pull your feet out of the water? Um, but you actually, if you watch both these movies, he's in both of them. 
Uh, he was also in Orca. He played Novak, who was the first crew member of the boat killed by the Orca. And Keenan Wynn, he had, he had a really long career in Hollywood as a character actor. He worked with a lot of famous people. Uh, he worked with Clark Gable, Fred Astaire, Gary Cooper, obviously the Duke himself, John Wayne. And he always took his craft very seriously. Uh, in fact, there's a uh, story on the set of Piranha. He was... Uh, he actually went off and chewed the ass of one, the production manager for walking through his line of sight during the scene where he's laying down dead in the yard. Uh, I guess it kind of threw him off, and he tore him a new one. Um, but uh, Belinda Belansky also dies in this movie, and she plays she, she played the doomed count, uh, camp counselor Betsy, but she did benefit a lot from that scene because apparently they've been doing this scene over and over all day and just couldn't get it right. And she was ready to go home for the night when they asked her to do it one more time. And she just negotiated on the on set at that time that if she does it one more time, she gets a little bit higher billing on the movie. Uh, so there's that as well. Uh, they shot all that underwater stuff in an Olympic training pool in L.A. And according to Joe Dante, they poured so much crap into the water, like milk, corn syrup, and whatnot... Not only to like make blood in the water, but also to fog it up so it looked like a river. Um, but they poured so much of that stuff in there that this mold started to grow. And if you believe the stories, it resulted in a previously unknown specimen of mold. Uh, but I bet I mean, I'm guessing they had a hell of a time cleaning that. I'm guessing the uh, Olympic swim team wasn't too happy. <laughs> uh, but like Orca, you can find Piranha easily enough on Amazon and streaming services. Uh, I highly recommend the steel, uh, the Steelbook Blu-ray from Shout Factory. I swear to God, uh, Shout Factory is not my sponsor or anything. I just happen to like what they put out. Um, but they put out a really good Steelbook of this, and I love the love the look of the Steelbook. So if you're a collector, it's definitely worth getting. Uh, it's got some good bonus features, commentary tracks, uh, some conversations with the special effects department. Uh, just fun stuff if you're into like the special features like I am. Um, that's going to do it for Piranha, and now we're going to go into another segment that I'm going to be closing every show with. Uh, it's going to be a countdown, basically, you know, top five, top ten, whatever is uh, that relates to the movies that we discussed. Uh, so if you subscribe to the Facebook page, you can take part in the voting for these because I don't pick the top five at all. They're voted on by just regular people like you, and that's where I get my list from. Uh, but for tonight, for our first countdown, we're doing the top five natural horror movies featuring aquatic animals and released in the 70s. So it's very specific. Uh, so let's go. Top five. Number five, Barracuda, 1978, directed by Harry Kerwin. And it's featuring chemically induced barracuda fish that go on a killing spree in Florida. We've all seen that plot again and again. Uh, number four, Tentacles. Uh, probably the best poster out of the five featured. It's got a really great movie poster. Uh, but it was directed by a video G. Asantis, uh, featuring a royally pissed-off giant octopus going after uh, Hollywood royalty Henry Fonda, of all people. Uh, number three, of course, we've got Piranha. Uh, number two, Orca, the killer whale. And, of course, at number one, uh, what else could it be, you know, but it's it's got to be for number one, Jaws. Uh, Steven Spielberg's classic, the first blockbuster, really. The movie that scared thousands of vacationers away from beaches. 
uh, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Shaw. It's a classic. If you haven't seen Jaws, you there's something wrong. I mean, you've been living under a rock, but it's okay because you can lift that rock up and go rent the movie and watch it. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely definitely a classic. Even though I think that Orca's better in my opinion, I, I can't uh, I can't deny that Jaws is an amazing movie. Uh, but that's going to do it for me tonight, folks. I want to give a ba- uh, big shout-out to my buddy Eric Parsons for producing this bad boy. Uh, you can check him out on the podcast Strange and Eerie Tales if you're into creepy stories. Or if you're a Kansas City sports fan, he also does Kingdom City Sports. Uh, but if you like this episode, be sure to hit like and subscribe. Uh, check out our Facebook page. And just you know, make sure you're here for our next episode where we're going to be talking about the two Roger Corman Sword and Sorcery Adventure movies, Deathstalker. And Deathstalker 2. Until next time, stay groovy, folks. Good night.